Steve Harrod was the CTO at VMware and now works as a managing director at General Catalyst, where he focuses on investments relating to security. General Catalyst is a venture capital firm. Large enterprises are difficult to secure, and that's why investing in security companies is pretty interesting. An enterprise has sprawling infrastructure with both on-prem and cloud infrastructure. There's identity management systems, vulnerability scanning, secure network infrastructure, policy management tools. There are so many areas where enterprises spend billions of dollars on security software. Threats often make their way into an enterprise by way of social engineering. This can result in phishing attacks, corporate espionage, and ransomware. Protecting against social engineering is very difficult, as there are so many channels to communicate through. Facebook Messenger, LinkedIn, email, ad networks that are just appearing on the internet. All of these things can be used to perform social engineering attacks. Enterprise security software is a very different business from other types of software companies. Unlike developer tools or cloud infrastructure, security software is usually not self-serve. Security solutions usually require a longer sales and integration process with a customer. Steve Harrod joins the show to talk about the enterprise security world and the go-to-market strategy for successful security companies, as well as his perspective on what makes for a viable venture capital investment. Steve was a previous guest on the show, talking about his early experiences at VMware and his perspectives on the cloud and the edge, and today's show is a great adjunct to our last episode. Before we get started, we have a few events coming up. We have a hackathon for my new company, Find Collabs, which is April 6th, and we have a meetup with Hasib Qureshi on April 3rd. The hackathon is a virtual hackathon and an in-person hackathon. You can find out more by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon or findcollabs.com slash hackathon. That's an event where you can share your open source projects, you can share your art projects, your music projects, and find collaborators using Find Collabs. There's a first place prize of $4,000, second place prize of $1,000, and plenty of other prizes. It'll be a lot of fun. And the in-person event on April 6th is at App Academy. We'll have some food. We'll hang out. We'll hack on some projects together. And I hope to see you there. And our meetup, which is on April 3rd, will feature Hasib Qureshi, who is a frequently requested guest on Software Engineering Daily. He's a good friend of mine. He's a savvy investor, cryptocurrency, entrepreneur, and also a former poker player who I met back in the poker days. So we have uh, some shared history, and it's going to be a lot of fun on April 3rd. You can find out about that event by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. And I recommend signing up for both of these events quickly because space will probably run out. And I hope to see you there. Let's get on with today's episode. Steve Herod, you are an investor at General Catalyst. You're a former CTO at VMware. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here again. 
You've been an investor since 2013. How has the security market changed in the last six years? Yeah, that was the area that I thought would be most interesting to start my investment career in after being at VMware and dealing with enterprise companies for a while. And the good news is it continues to be a very good market. And I think as measured by the amount of spending going on at customers, security obviously continues to be a huge problem for all of them. So it's one of the few areas where end customers are increasing their spending. And the good or the bad news is that the types of attacks are getting even more sophisticated and, and by stronger organizations. So the need for solutions to improve technology-wise has been growing. So that makes for a great investor space. Lots of spending and lots of disruption to be made. When you were at VMware, what were the biggest security concerns that you saw? Yeah, it's funny. At a top level, the same type of threat continues to be the number one threat, which is tricking people into doing something. And whether that's phishing or new forms of malware or you know, the latest form of how you get an employee to open that <laughs> attachment, they're coming in different forms now, but that continues to be the number one way that companies get infected. Someone will open something ultimately granting their privileges to a bad third party. And then that third party can pretend that they're Jeff in a company and go off and do stuff under their name and get data and that sort of thing. So the, the same core problem has been there. It's just now we have new forms of channels for people to communicate over a Slack or something like that, and far more sophisticated ways of personalizing a note that goes out to you to get you to do something. Are you seeing Slack phishing attacks? I think it's the beginning. I'm seeing the early signs of all of these other channels that we communicate over, whether it's something like Slack or text messaging or even you know documents and collaborative documents is something we all spend time on now, whether it's like a Google Doc or a O365 Doc. People are, are able to collaborate in those and cause some malware to be distributed through those as well. Yeah, I got an unsolicited LinkedIn message this morning from somebody sending me a PDF and talking about investment-related subjects. Like, here's the investment document. I'm like, what? You know, I, so I definitely did not click on the PDF, but... PDFs are, in particular, I'm seeing a growing amount of malware being distributed through them. It's kind of a whole programming language, PDF. And previously, for old-school listeners, you know, PostScript was a full programming language. And so you could embed a lot of nasty stuff in those. You were at RSA recently. What was the best anecdote about modern security that you heard there? What I've noticed is that on every single RSA, there's some different theme. And the theme comes in the form of both uh, what types of attacks people are talking about on one side. And then there's definitely a thematic, what is the hot new technology that we should be looking forward to? And there's always optimism, like, what is the one that will finally solve the security problem? And obviously, they never solve everything, but they sort of move the bar forward. So this year, I think the, the notion was really focused on, I, I kind of saw it as trust no one. All the, the ways people are doing phishing attacks are getting more sophisticated. Insider threats are very big. So it's all this notion of like, whether it's machines or humans, it's getting even trickier to believe anyone, which is kind of sad. I guess it falls into the fake news world as well. So like, who do you trust being one thing? And then as a result, the type of solutions being discussed a lot are what are called zero trust architectures. And the core of zero trust means basically that, trust no one. Um, it used to be that at least if you were within your firewall or within your data center, you could believe the machines were going to be fine. But now it kind of says, hey, don't even believe that. Let's authenticate every single server, even if it's inside our own data center walls. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of other advantages too, because if you have different, if you have like different shades of contractors also coming through, then the notion that our default is we're not going to trust this individual becomes much more practical. 
It does. Definitely, you could argue we're in a more and more gig-oriented world with more and more sort of alternate workforce workers. But what I find interesting is that the line between an internal worker being uh, negligent versus being actively bad, it kind of doesn't matter. Because if you get... If someone gets into your account and then becomes you, you know, that's kind of the same thing as if you were a bad actor doing things internally. So I don't really see the solutions being particularly different to a contractor versus an internal employee in this zero trust world. Were there any other broad takeaways from the conference? Any strange or subtle themes? Maybe things that don't seem like they're big today, but maybe bellwethers of what you're going to see be the the big zero trust level theme of five years down the line? Good, good question. And that's really what my job is to try to do is to find the next big thing, not the one that everyone just invested in and is uh, <laughs> and sort of is happy with. You know, it's easy to be sarcastic about it or very positive about it, but the notion of using AI for security is as loud and as popular as ever. But you really have to dig through a lot of noise to find the, the true nuggets there. But I do think the ability to do, you know, previously it was just pure automation that would let you do things better in security. Now it's really, you can think about it as super smart uh, automation. So let's really use the machines to do some reasoning about whether something is good or bad and then trigger some action based upon that. So if you put it in that context, I think the, uh, the ability to, for instance, to really recognize any mail coming into you and looking at all the factors around it, uh, what time of day, who did it come from, what was the verbiage like within the mail. Um, I'm pretty excited about understanding the natural language in the context of whether a Slack note or an email to decide if it's something that you should be worried about or not. So that's an example where you go from traditional pure statistics and automation to much more of a true machine learning approach. How has the adoption of the cloud changed the world of security? Another very good question. A lot of people obviously originally sold the cloud as risky from a security standpoint. This led to the growth of a lot of companies that did well. The CASB market in particular is an area that grew out of pretty much everyone realizing their employees were using the cloud and having no visibility over it. But on the one hand, I think you can argue the cloud is is safer in many ways than running things in your own world. Certainly, if you go talk to the security teams at Amazon or Google or Microsoft, the amount of attacks they get on their infrastructure every single day is thousands of times higher than any single company. And likewise, the amount of technology and skill that they can put into their staff to prevent and protect and to get forewarning about these is better than any single company can hope to do. So in that way, it's, it's kind of safe in the sense that this is the, <laughs> it is like the aggregation of all threats and, and all skills sort of being in there. So I think that's good. Um, on the flip side, it's just, it's very different for companies. You can move so much faster. You can do things you know, from the bottoms up in the terms of a single employee going out and swiping a credit card to use these things. So while it might be safe in its own right, the policies and what you might be putting into there and even how you use these cloud controls are not necessarily something everyone is trained on. So there has been a, a number of recent acquisitions and focuses on these tools that really help you enforce policies on the cloud for all your employees even as they move faster and as they adopt them more aggressively. So all in all, I'd say it's a, it's a mixed bag right now for those two reasons. And then the third one would be, again, no matter what, even if you're in a cloud or anywhere, there's still a lot of policy decisions over who can do what, when should you encrypt things, and so on, that sort of thing. And so you still have to have a security team that figures out what your policies should be there and, and actually implements them. And so that's been something where you've, you've had to look at a lot of bigger companies having to hire people to do that or 
you know, I think the ideal world is your existing security tools. You can create some policy and then have that apply wherever you're running, whether it's you know yesterday's mainframes all the way to the cloud, to containers, to whatever else is next. So I really do think that that's where we need to go is let's declare a security policy at some top level and then have it be instantiated wherever you happen to be running as a company. Can you talk about that in more detail? Because I hear what you're saying, but you have all these deployments where it's like, I'm an insurance company, I've been in business for 40 years, only now I'm moving into the cloud and figuring out my hybrid architecture. And the cloud presents a lot of great security properties, but the fact that now I have this entirely new medium where I'm running some of my workloads, so some of my workloads are going to be on-prem, some of them are going to be in the cloud it seems like it actually makes security riskier, more complex, more detailed. And I don't know, t- tell me if I'm wrong, or like how, do, how a company that's moving into a hybrid architecture, let's say you're the CSO at, at that kind of company, how do you get towards a place where you can have some uniform policy management strategy? I think you're absolutely onto one of the big challenges. And I would I would even abstract it after being in this industry for a while. Anytime there's a new environment, anytime there's heterogeneity of some type, it does make the job harder for what you might have done before. And so the way I typically have thought about first cloud adoption and now sort of secure cloud adoption, really like the older and the more regulated a company is, the far slower they're going to be in moving towards this. They have too many entrenched processes. They have, with regulation, they've figured out how to do something, at least according to the regulators. So when I see the more traditional or mainline companies that have these restrictions, like an insurance company, they typically end up carving out an entirely different team, and they pick one specific small project, and they kind of use this team to show the rest of the company what could be possible. And uh, this follows a lot of the other things you cover, whether it's just we're going to be more agile or we're going to move to DevOps. They always get this sort of green team and they, they put people around it and try out something. And so in that world, I'd say that security is very bespoke to them. It's, it's like very much focused on that one project. And so I think this is one of the huge opportunities is startups that can now come in and bridge from how you are doing something to where you go forward. And uh, I'm seeing some early companies do this. They might do this through orchestration processes like Let's create the if this, then that type of scripts that allow you to push things out across the environments. It certainly is often the case that you have your sort of cloud specialist that's now on your security staff, and they're in charge of manually you know, applying the process there. And then certainly I'm both my own companies and seeing others that are really trying to have that message now too, and, and really have the products where you can d- declare things once and then have them work multiple places. It's very hard and it takes a lot of plugins and all of that, but I do think that's where security has to go. And again, if you go back in time, this is kind of where every management tool company goes. They, they sort of start best of breed for one environment. And then over time, they add more and more environments into it. And it's that heterogeneity that ends up making them really popular for the, for the much larger companies. There are three different security environments that I'd like to get your perspective on for how they vary. So one is 
that kind of enterprise we just talked about, the insurance company. It's been around for 40 years. Another is the brand new startup. So let's say I'm a brand new startup. I'm one to three years old. I've got good traction, but I'm just I'm, I'm running as fast as I can. It's very hard for me to th- even think about security policy. I'm just trying to think about like raising the next round of funding and, you know, keeping my customers happy, keeping the lights on. The third category that I want to explore is these late stage cloud native startups or maybe not exactly cloud native, but you take companies like Uber, Airbnb, Thumbtack, Netflix, where they were basically born in the age of the cloud. The people working there are super sophisticated uh, or, you know, many of them are. So how do the security factors and security policies vary across these three types of companies? Yeah, I love the couching of that problem. And this, again, it probably applies to almost everything you look at within the software engineering world because, you know, every year there's a new better way by default to do things. And and the companies, obviously, Netflix is a great example. You know, everyone knows how well they adopted Amazon Web Services and they've put out a ton of open source to show what they've had to create along the way. But you see all these companies now that are at, I don't know, call them preteens or something. I'm not sure where they live overall. They are hitting various bottlenecks and they're needing to re-architect their products quite a bit. And I think, you know, certainly in this five-year period now, it's the move to microservices and using containers for for being even more lightweight in how you build these apps. And so I've seen a I've seen a real growth, not just in security, but everywhere else in terms of how do you take wherever we're coming from and and uh, and sort of break this thing into the right parts. And I think that applies to security as well. So I think you've, you've seen and heard about people who take monolithic apps and break them into microservices. I see when they're doing that, there's typically some component of security built into it. Uh, lots of approaches these days in terms of, you know, when you're deploying a new app, for instance, no one actually updates the software in these microservices. They actually redeploy them from scratch with uh, with the latest software. And that's one way to you know, sort of start fresh each time, which is a good security practice. Um, oftentimes you're seeing now in the zero trust world, this notion of identity associated with each of these microservices. And that's being built in from the start where there's encrypted and protected uh, communications between them. But but forgetting the technology piece, you also see that it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs a little bit for software. Like when you're a first, second year software company, you just want people to use your software and Sure, it'd be great to be perfectly secure and all these other things, but no one cares if it's secure if they're not using the app. So you kind of have a shifting of of the requirements there. And so I always see companies when they hit kind of what you said, maybe the three, four year mark. And it probably ties more importantly with when you're getting some more mainstream customers using your product as a board member or as an engineering leader there. You absolutely know that your risk now is like, what if we get broken into or what if the data leaks as opposed to you know, what if the product doesn't work or what if the user experience is terrible? So I would just say that both the need and the resources to do a proper job probably ramp as the company gets older. You always see it like year two or three or right before a significant launch, they do their first bug bounty program, as an example, or their, most, their first pen testing sort of thing. So I, I think it's typically working that way. I want to go deeper into the zero trust market because you were talking about zero trust at RSA and the I can just imagine the the football field of vendors 
that are offering various zero trust solutions. So as I guess as a venture capitalist, what are the obviously this is a, like a trend, but many things are trends. You can't just say, okay, I invest money in the trend. What is the best way to place a bet on zero trust networking? That's a great question. The way I think about it is you need to know what's coming down the pipe and what what is the problem area, you know, 3 years ahead of when it's actually there. And what I see a lot of these these big awareness campaigns oftentimes are driven by the analysts who declare, you know, this is what your architecture should be or this should be your priority for the year. If you aren't working on a 10x better solution for that, you know, two, three years ago, you're not going to be ready for prime time when it comes out. So I, I think of most of these these trends as official either doctrine or marketing or things that are going on. But why it matters so much to these startups, one is, you know, at RSA, I think there are 800 startups there. And if you imagine poor CISOs who are trying to choose what products to use, they're in nonstop POCs, proof of concepts, and they're they're really constantly trying to figure out who they should use. When they start to hear things like, oh, I should be worried about zero trust, and then they see the leader in zero trust is this, that really just narrows down the field that they have to look at. So I think it's super critical for really being a real product in that space just to get above the noise and to get to the priority list. But also like from a pragmatic standpoint, the way these big companies often work is they will allocate some chunk of money for each initiative. So we're seeing right now a lot of companies have said for 2019, we are going to spend $50 million on zero trust. It's a really important initiative. And so if now I'm a company associated with and who's able to deliver is that, on sorry, zero trust. Sorry, is that a realistic number? $50 million in a year on zero trust specifically? It is for a big company for sure. Like what's exa- like a big company? Well, I'd say any of the Fortune 500 could easily spend that much. Now, what falls under that? This is where budget games often come in. Uh, there's certainly, you might have been doing something and if you can now justify it as zero trust as an internal employee, that's one way since the dawn of time employees have gotten their projects funded. But I think there's a reality to it too. It is something you say, the analysts have spoken, this really is a critical part for me to get right. I have a big budget and I'm gonna put a big chunk towards it. So the numbers are real. And again, why this matters for the startups, it's often easy to go in and say, I have this great solution that solves your problems. But if they're not pre-allocated saying, this is an important initiative for us, this notion of a startup mapping to budgets that have been created is something we deal with every single day. And it was something I wasn't super clear on how that worked until I was you know, sort of really deep into this. But going in and pitching a product that doesn't have explicit budget associated with it is so much harder than one that does. How would you vet a company? If a company came to you and said, we're a zero trust networking company, you know, they lay out their, their go-to-market strategy, what what's an appealing go-to-market strategy? Or, or, or the inverse question, what are the red flags you look for because the security market, for people who don't know, is, I mean, to my mind, it's it's quite different than some of the other software solution markets because there's no network effects. There's much less word of mouth. It's It's more like, do you have a really, really good sales team? Do you have a really, really good integrations team? Do you understand pricing really, really, really well? Can you empathize with these really big companies that have really big budgets to spend and really good reasons to be concerned? So in that way, it's very different than you know some of the enterprise uh, prosumer Slack, SaaS, you know, Zen payroll kind of solutions. So I'm just trying to to get inside your head as like, you know, somebody that's assessing these companies that are coming through your door and saying, we're selling, for example, a zero trust solution. 
And you can look at these companies and sometimes be like, that's a great engineering solution, but you are not the team that's going to be able to sell into the enterprise. Yeah, and that is at least half of the job of a venture capital team is to is to do the diligence or to do the vetting or to understand which ones are the fit for what you're trying to accomplish. <laughs> so this is everything. I, I would say, you know, security has some real positives in terms of how you do diligence and how you choose which ones will be the, uh, at least what you think could be the winners. There, there's not an explicit network effect often, but in many cases there is the, there is so much of a following the leader approach in security. So there's certainly well known if you're in banking and you see J.P. Morgan adopt something, that's already going to go to the top of the list of something you think, wow, if it's good enough for them, I really care. And so, for instance, in the financial sector, there's a lot of talking between teams and there's a lot of job changes between teams, and so you do get a very nice networking effect following from that. I think the other thing, what I do all the time, and, and anyone who ever comes in to pitch an enterprise company to me, my first question is always explain how this is at least 10 times better than what they're using today. And for me, that's an important question because of all the noise and all the things going on, being twice as good or three times as good just kind of doesn't matter. From a technology standpoint, it has to be a sizable jump forward. In security, it needs to be a sizable jump forward in either the types of things that it finds. Uh, how quickly it finds them, how convenient it is to employees as they're doing it, the price, something has to be that much better. That's really how do you distinguish yourself from the others. In terms of domain-specific questions, uh, Zero Trust, I'm probably a bit more technical than a lot of the venture folks, so I I spend a lot of time understanding the area itself and uh, some of the key customers, what they're talking about as their best solutions today. And so I, I do tend to go pretty deeply and say, Okay, zero trust is about trust no one. It's about individual nodes within your uh, data center being able to be compromised. How do you keep it from spreading? Explain how this does that. And so I'll definitely look for them to explain how they do it. And not just from a technical standpoint, but really if they're pitching a venture capitalist, it should be the same as how they pitch employees to get them to to join the company or how they pitch big customers to get them to take a risk on a smaller company. And so that storytelling behind why this satisfies the tenets of the space you're going after is really important. Is there any bet you've placed on a quote-unquote zero-trust solution yet? My, one of my biggest bets is called Illumio, which is, it actually didn't start being called zero-trust, but Illumio is a, is a company that I've been in for about five years now, and they focus on what's called micro-segmentation. It really means carving up your internal network so that only, only the pieces that are allowed to talk to one another can talk to one another. So when the company was started, the idea of trust no one was very much growing and the notion of east-west traffic in a data center being something that's not protected by today's firewalls and something we should care about. (laughs) So it would be... be East-west, that's like load balance traffic or... Uh, Sorry, east-west usually refers to servers talking to one another within a data center, and you typically call north-south as when they start talking outside the data center to customers. I don't know why it's it's north-south versus east-west, but it typically means inter-server communication as opposed to going through the uh, public internet outbound to other folks. But anyway, the point was uh, the notion that you shouldn't trust all these things speaking to one another internal to a data center and realizing that traditional firewalls don't reach inside a data center. They typically form that perimeter around it. Uh, That's why we got going on the company. And it's been selling really well to a lot of these environments. And and I would say only over the last three years has it been called zero trust and you know, Forrester came out with their, their Wave product, which is where they look at these, and 
lo and behold, we were at the, the top of that. <laughs> so we realized, okay, we are in the middle of this uh, zero trust wave. And now that we're able to be well associated with that and legitimately delivering on it, the demand for the product has gone up substantially by people with budget for that this year. Are there good open source solutions around Zero Trust? That's a good way to, to phrase it. There's certainly a lot of interesting open source projects that are then turned into use in an open source solution. I'm trying to think off the cuff. I can't think of companies or you know open source projects that are explicitly Zero Trust. I'll give you a couple of examples, though. So one company, I'm involved with them as well, so I'm obviously biased, but there's a, a very popular network open source project called Bro. Uh, we just named, changed the name to Zeek <laughs> to be a little more. Uh, Bro is not cool these days. And it actually was named after Big Brother, like the Orwellian thing, oh, okay. not after being like a, a bro. <laughs> but anyway, they're uh, kind of the, the core way that people really understand how networking traffic is going on within a data center. Again, super popular framework used by tons of companies as they built up their own solutions. But now that people are recognizing whether you're in the cloud or whether you're local to your data center, that everything is kind of about this network traffic. It's now being rolled into new startups as well as to do-it-yourself projects around zero trust. And I imagine in many cases, the technology, whether it's open source or not, may not even be as important as technology plus integration. Like yeah, like you need somebody to, sh to Sherpa you through the integration, right? It's interesting. The whole topic of open source is, again, something you talk about all the time. It seems to matter a whole lot less in security than a lot of other spaces. Um, certainly, people like it, and it always has the benefits of more transparency, the ability to take it and go do your own thing. But especially in security, I tend to find this mostly in security and maybe some of the management tools, like people just need this thing to work and they want someone accountable for it to work. And whether you do that as an open source or not, I think is probably secondary. So I would say, I've never done this study, I should, but of the 800 companies at RSA, I don't think of a lot of them as being pure open source plays at all. You think that'll change? You think you think the security tools will get more open source over time? Because I mean, you think about something like Linux or Bitcoin; these things have been hardened by virtue of all the eyes on them. But you kind of need to pass a certain threshold of the number of eyes. It's like when you're under that threshold, your product is more vulnerable by being open source because you don't have enough eyes to find all the security holes. But once you pass that threshold, you've got eyes over every minutia. No, that's a really good point. There should be some. You can name a number. That's the number of eyes that have to be on something right. for it to be safe. So I, I would make a distinguishing between you know the core platforms people are using and those being open source tends to be a preference because of all the things you, you just mentioned. Certainly um, transparency. I think people think of vendor, more vendor control by being able to take your code and run if you need to. And so I would say the things that people are running on are definitely preferred to be open source in many cases. There's the eyeballs factor, but where oftentimes things fall apart on the longer tail of open source projects is when, great, you found the bug, who's going to fix it and who's going to get it into a rolled up distribution? And so in that case, open source can be challenging. Again, these are for the longer tail of packages that might not have a big company behind them. If you don't have someone to fix it, then you own the problem. And so in that sense, you'd rather have a commercial entity or closed source or something like that. We're actually involved with a cool company called Tidelift, which is trying to match up developers with their open source projects, in part to guarantee that there is someone who can fix these security issues when needed, sort of recognizing that challenge for some folks. But again, the security projects themselves, you know, so much of security is a lot of, a lot of things integrated together. 
And a lot of the tools for stitching them together and the integrations have open source components. So I think there's like the overall security solution versus individual projects that are getting together. Even just like one example is the SIM area. This is where all of the events come into a security operations center. You know, this is dominated by folks like like Splunk and, and Sumo and ArcSight and all these companies that are out there. I don't think anyone's ever thought of those as being open source or need to be. They're just this, there's part of your security solution that just has to work super well. So there's probably a distinguishing factor across the platforms that you're running on that need to be open source for various reasons versus the core tooling within security. Let's talk about malware. Describe the modern malware that might threaten an organization. Boy, that's the best question right now. So malware is, you know, bad software, basically, something that comes in to, to cause mal, malintent. And if, for those who have been around for a while, it used to be that Windows EXE file that you would open up. People don't really talk about that much anymore. And the traditional virus checker sitting on your Windows desktop is sort of still matters, but it's not really the dominant factor. Uh, today's malware is coming through a lot of different mechanisms. Some of the scariest stuff is being delivered just through the web. And there's plenty of cases of you know JavaScript that has been embedded somewhere that can infect your machine somehow. And uh, what's kind of scary about it, phase one of the internet was recognizing sort of sketchy websites versus normal ones. And so a, a lot of companies were built up categorizing websites into known dangerous or like unknown or good. And so you could kind of choose where you go or not. You kind of know not to click on some things that look like skull and crossbones on them or something. But uh, but what's been interesting as of the last five years is malware is being delivered through things like the ad networks. And you might trust CNN.com, but the ad network delivering you ads on CNN.com is coming from a totally different point. So there's all these different sites that are aggregated on that web page. And uh, it's become very difficult to know which ones are coming in in a bad way. So web-borne malware is, is increasingly scary and has led to a, a lot of tricky new problems. And then another one, certainly right now, you're hearing more and more about document-borne malware. So something that might be embedded in that PDF file that you open up. And uh, having to really rethink, you know, even if it's coming from a trusted source, is there something in the, you know, in the macros that are written in this Excel document or something like that that could cause trouble? There's just so much power in these documents now that we're seeing that as another frontier. I think mobile devices people have talked about for a long time. I, I still think that's proven so far to be far less dangerous, mostly because of the operating system control and how much is locked down. But uh, a lot of what I've been focusing on over the last few years now has been what are the solutions for web-borne and document-borne malware. I'm surprised what you say about mobile devices. Like if I was running an enterprise and I had my employees using uh, or looking at sensitive documents on their phone, which everybody does, and my employees are installing flashlight apps on their phone, do, don't I have cause to be concerned? Or are the, are the operating systems like Android, for example, iOS is obviously a more secure story, but if they're using Android phones, I mean, don't I have cause for concern? Certainly you could, and there's definitely a lot of examples. In the cases of like the famous flash flashlight apps, more of the damage to date has been done. So I guess that would you could definitely call that malware. It's, it was in a different context than what I was thinking of. But the damage of the flashlight app on almost all these cases has been a bunch of your, your location data or your own personal information on what all apps are running on your system or maybe where you've been. 
that was being transmitted to the companies. And so that's really, I, I was putting that under the privacy breach standpoint, but it is a form of malware. Again, I, I do think there are certainly classes of problems here and people could be concerned by them. But I would just say in general, that has not been the battleground yet that I think some of the other areas have been. And it, again, it's largely because of uh, even, I, I think everyone thinks of Apple as stronger on the security controls, but even on the, on the Google side, the ability to you know take apps out of the Play Store if they haven't, you know, if they've gone bad. And really the sandboxing that happens between apps is far stronger than it is in some of the traditional operating systems. So I, I think everyone over the last 10 years, the number of companies that have launched around being worried about various virus attacks of different sorts on the mobile has been large, but none of those have been particularly large compared to what's going on in the rest of the world. If I install really malicious malware somehow, either through clicking on a PDF or I'm surfing the web in at, at a lunch break and an ad in an ad network on CNN manages to infect my computer, what what hap- what's the worst that can happen? What these things can follow a lot of different mechanisms and there it's incredible programming that goes into these things used for bad, but like the amount of technology there is so high. Yeah, I would say a, a traditional approach to malware might be, like for a very clever malware, might be somehow it gets onto your system. Typically what that means is there's some application or process that is now running on your system that has privileges of some kind. Uh, in the ideal world, this malware has become the most powerful user on your laptop or on your server. It's a super user of some of some sort. In the less powerful case, it is running as you. So it kind of has the same privileges to access files or to go places that you would have. So all of them find some way of being run on behalf of either the user or the super user of that system. And then once they are in that privilege, uh, they have all sorts of mechanisms for evading capture. And it is a cloak and dagger game. Um, oftentimes they'll go quiet for months on end. Like They won't do anything. And on a certain date or after some certain time, they'll then wake up and they'll do bad stuff. Even the bad stuff that they do is cloaked in an amazing set of uh, tricks that people have used over time. This process itself is not something that you can like just see running. Or if you are, it's going to look like something that's innocuous. If you're tracking like is something downloading 50 gigabytes one night, like that might be something to look for. Most of them are not that dumb. They'll trickle out little pieces of data at various times again, time to be evading capture. So it comes in all these different forms, but at the very core, it is usually about how do I infect this machine and get some privileges? It's absolutely about how do I then spread to other machines that this person might have access to? And then it becomes, once I'm in there, how do I get data of some sort back to mission uh, headquarters, basically? We had a show recently about crypto jacking. Have you heard of this? Yes, I've seen quite a bit of crypto jacking. It's, a, it's an interesting one in its own right, uh, where I guess you covered, they basically encrypt some of your files and say, if you don't give me some Bitcoin, uh, you don't get your files. Well, that's, that's ransomware. But so crypto jacking, I, I, maybe that's also classified as crypto jacking. The crypto jacking that we did a show on, or at least the way I hadn't heard of this term before I, I talked to this guy, but it's basically like, the the javascript mining bitcoin in your in your browser oh yeah both i, I think of both in the crypto <laughs> hijacking world but okay. but certainly two different ones and that's a form rather than actually to put them in context so in the the case you're speaking to definitely is one that we've seen a lot of and it's particularly interesting in the cloud case where right. 
if it gets into your system, rather than sending data, like the value being the data, the value is being computation time that's charged to you. <laughs> so, so in that case, it's like, uh, I don't know if you ever use SETI at home or something like right, that, but exactly. it's a way to do computation um, and, and try to earn you some earn some Bitcoins. I think of the ransomware as another form of that, but, but um, yeah, this is a particularly prevalent use case that's hitting now where people are finding lots of stuff running on their behalf. Yeah. Have you seen any startups get slammed by ransomware or it's, is it just those big stories that you hear like the hospitals and... Ransomware has been super popular in the sense of uh, hitting big and small companies. It's just, you know, the data matters a lot more typically in an older, bigger company. When, this is kind of an interesting side effect, but uh, most of these data kidnappers essentially have had to write really great tutorials on how to buy Bitcoin because <laughs> if they're trying to get ransom this way and, and people don't have it. So I, I actually thought that was kind of funny. Like if you ever are looking at how to get started with Bitcoin, some of the best tutorials <laughs> are coming there. But what's interesting for me, what I hadn't realized, I, I had a very large company doing uh, data backup and data recovery. And people have always done that for like, if my system crashes, how do I go back in time? But I've definitely seen that as the dominant uh, growing use case has been, okay, I was hijacked at 2 p.m. on Friday, let's go back to 1 p.m. on Friday and like forget that ever happened. So you can actually recover your encrypted files by just going back in time. Yeah. Uh, so the crypto jacking on the on the side of the like mining Bitcoin on my computer is this is this kind of a is he a unique threat at all or is it just do you kind of lump it under the same category as like malicious ad network delivery anything new about it I don't think it's new like I said at some point the whole point is to take value out of the system that you've attacked and I think the value comes in a lot of forms it might come from personal data about you that then gets sold on the black market it might be um, you know some file it finds on your system or it might be computation time that it just stole from you so I think all those are a way of taking value out of something once it's been attacked one of your investments, I was looking at this company, it was pretty interesting, Menlo Security. Explain what Menlo Security does to deal with malware. Yeah, this has been a really fun company for me, too. This is my first Series A investment when I became an investor. And what they do is they they provide a form of isolation for the web and for documents and for mail. And when you think about the big picture of security, I really think a change, I think everyone thinks a big change has to happen. The traditional word of security has been, how do I detect some bad thing that's happening and then don't let it happen? So there's signatures and viruses, firewalls might do some little simulation or look for things. Um, IDS systems are doing this. But if you really think about it, like how well has this really worked for us? Um, Certainly you take 95% or something of the known attacks from ever getting into your to your laptop or to your servers. But whenever there's a day zero attack, some new type of thing that it doesn't know about, it often fails at catching it. So uh, I think a way to think about the security world changing is let's do all that, but let's also really focus heavily on preventing damage from really spreading once it gets in. So that is a form of zero trust a little bit, but I, I wouldn't call it that. I just call it isolation. So minimal security, rather than run a web browser you know, entirely on your laptop, they've done this really cool approach to running part of the web browser in the cloud. And it's actually the part that touches the dangerous JavaScript that could be coming in. They sort of very quickly and very seamlessly do all the execution part of a web page in the cloud. 
and then mirror the what the web page looks like and how it feels to interact with it down to your laptop. You have no idea this is happening, and that's critical for people to adopt it. But what it means is the bad stuff, even if it's there, uh, it's running in some container in the cloud, and you just throw it away at the end of a session. As opposed to in the old world, it would have been running on your laptop and left some vestige there that could cause damage. So in many ways, it's a form of virtualizing web pages in, in that particular sense and isolating them from causing trouble. So this company's taken off really quickly and is selling to some really large customers who are basically tired of the cat and mouse game in security and saying, we're going to keep doing that, but if you can promise me I'll never get infected from a web page, why wouldn't I move to that? And, and that's exactly what they've done is like, if you never have the executing piece get to your laptop, it's never going to cause a problem. They've subsequently extended that solution into email so that you can't accidentally click on a bad document or a bad link, and even into documents so that even if you're interacting with a Word document or a PDF document, the dangerous part is running in a disposable cloud container while the user experience uh, has no idea that that's happening. So really interesting company, and I, I've been excited by the more general thesis around isolation as well. Yeah, I found it pretty clever too. Like basically, you you render a web page virtually, and then you kind of deliver, as I understand it, like a just a, a shim of that web page to the actual user within the enterprise. So the user just sees kind of a a, a virtualized browser where the func the functionality and the vulnerabilities are are sandboxed. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? No, you, that describes it very well. And I think there's two really important points, points to this. Um, the first is that there's something in web browsers called the DOM. Uh, and the DOM is, it's the perfect layer to do this at because a DOM is universal across browsers. And I learned this at VMware. If you can find the right layer to sort of virtualize and get in at, a lot of good things happen. What this means is basically every web page is going to work and it's going to work to every type of browser because we've picked this DOM layer. Yeah. And so as you said, kind of this, this shim approach is a good way to think about it. Like had to say this from the start of the company and we've had to focus on this. There's always this challenge between security and convenience to a user. And as they always say, like the safest system is not connected to anything, but that's not realistic. So what we had to spend several years doing is Certainly that core uh, DOM virtualization piece is there, but if you still can't use all of your plugins and can't drag and drop and have some weird file upload, if anything looks different to a user, they're going to find a way around Menlo security. And that's what we've done, I think, a really good job of is making it seamless to the user while making sure it's protecting everybody. So when you look at that solution, the, the virtualized browser, to me, that seems like a great technological solution. It seems like something that could be copied. It could be re-implemented. So when you look at a company like Menlo Security and you know, you're know you evaluating the technical solution, is there do you see a moat there or does there even need to be a technological moat? Like, does the fact that they if they get, a, get out ahead of the market... They can be, you know, the person that sells to J.P. Morgan, and then the rest of the dominoes fall to other customers. Is that enough to get out ahead of the market? And it doesn't really matter if, you know, some other secure, some established security vendor with other go-to-market channels just copies their solution. Does does it matter how replicable that that solution is? 
That's something we talk about every single investment is what is the protection? What is the moat is sort of VC speak for how they're protected in, in this world. Uh, you always, if, if you didn't invest because some big company could replicate something, you'd never kind of do anything. So you always have to look at what is the unfair advantage for this firm. In the case of Menlo Security, you know, we were working on the product for two and a half years before anyone even heard about it. And in that time had hired a lot of the best engineers thinking around this. We actually licensed some key patent work from Berkeley. We actually created a lot of our own patents. You never say a company's protected because of their patents, but it's an important part of the process. But it's often about how do you accumulate the engineers and really go all in on the solution and think through all the problems to stay ahead of, of people. And then at that point, it certainly becomes your brand is a JP Morgan using you so that others might recognize that. It, you just have to continually stay ahead at that point. But early on, it's about the team, the technology approach. And in the case of a lot of companies, a lot of the existing firms out there can't afford to go all in on a solution like this. And they might have vestige interest, interests in the detection phase, or they're more interested in categorizing websites than just isolating all of them. So we continue to see that uh, play out right now, where I think anyone who thinks about security for a while realizes isolation needs to be a bigger part of it, but they have other things going on, so they just can't be single-mindedly focused on it like we are at Menlo Security. You mentioned Berkeley there. Uh, so academic security research, I mean, most major computer science institutions have some academic security research. Um, what's the life cycle like for, or, or how, how frequently are research endeavors productized? Does that happen on a regular basis? It does across pretty much every industry. I wouldn't say that security is more or less uh, than any other. Um, I, I personally worked on VMware with my advisor at, at Stanford before creating the company. It was oh, a academically created firm. Yes, uh, Mendel Rosenblum was the professor oh, there. Oh, wow. So you worked with him as an, as an undergrad? Uh, I was there as a grad student. He was my PhD advisor. Oh, cool. And his wife is the founder of right, VMware, right, right. Diane. But, but the point was, like, that was a very, started as a very academic project, which is really meaningful to me. So I'll, I'll speak for a minute about it and we can go off later. But one thing I really love about academia is that they have the time to step back and look at history or look at everything going on before coming up with a theory and then going after it. And so I think you get really thoughtful projects that go into this. In terms of productizing it, especially for an enterprise market, that's not something that academics do particularly well. So you typically pair up the idea generation and the, the thoughtfulness around where this fits with people who are ruthless on schedules and quality and integrations with other tools, things that you just don't think about in universities. But I think it's a very potent combination to take those two and, and feed them together. And oftentimes what VCs do is we're meeting with professors at universities, seeing which students are graduating that have been working on some idea, and then pair them up with some very enterprise-focused people that have, have done the company side before. Does that happen to this day, or have the major companies cannibalized the, the research process? So it happens <laughs> probably this week it will happen. It's a very interesting world. The, uh, as you, Whenever you talk to professors at universities, uh, certainly there's, especially around here, a lot of professors will take a sabbatical and themselves go do an interesting company yeah. for a year. That's been very interesting to watch. But it's the only place on earth where the workforce basically turns over every few years. And so the, the number of hot, sharp graduate students coming out of these popular labs 
is sort of endless. And, and so that leads to a really lot of good ideas coming out and a lot of company founders coming out. What are the security companies that have had the biggest investment outcomes across the industry? Like, what are you, what are the home run legendary security company investments? There have been a lot. I, I think probably if you were to ask anyone today, they would say Palo Alto Networks looks like you know one of the the biggest, and they're. I can check their market cap exactly lately, but yeah, they started as a classic venture-oriented venture company, and now they're quite large and doing lots of acquisitions and, and have a big market cap. But you can kind of go through the history of security companies, and uh, there have just been a, a large number going through. I think Checkpoint was probably one of the earlier ones that everyone talked to. And as you go forward now, Tanium, for instance, is one of the largest security companies, private security companies by market cap. And so I think just like any other part of the venture world, there's been, you know, every few years, a very large multi-billion dollar company gets created. I'd say what's a little different about security is that uh, there's a surprising amount of consolidation and a surprising amount of M&A that goes on. So it, I, I don't have the data uh, in front of me, but I believe more companies probably get consolidated into uh, this market than they do in a lot of the other enterprise spaces. And it's partly because customers, as we were talking about, they're so busy and they have so many types of solutions they should be looking at. I think more so than other spaces, security, they'd love to have one or two vendors that can just give them a ton of the protection across all these spaces that they need. But because the types of protection needed have changed so much and get so broad, that kind of means you know you need to buy yet another new solution if you can't generate it yourself. And so uh, versus a lot of other areas, I'd say there's not a lot of huge, huge cyber-only companies that are out there. There's a lot of mid-sized ones that have um, have done really well and continue to grow through acquisition. Is it an industry where acquisitions work more frequently? Because that's a, you know, often talked about, oh, the acquisitions just don't work usually. I think in this case, it works better than most. And it's, again, the real, if you start with the customer, they they would love to have a fewer number of vendors where they can buy a lot of their stuff from. And so that's sort of phase one is like, at least there's one vendor who can show me what I need to care about and that I can interact with one salesperson and do one contract. There's that part of it. But if you really want to talk about how companies come in and get better, it's when the products work better together, if they have a common user experience, if you can do one support call and get them all supported. And so I think in the security space, maybe the bar is so low for tight integrations of the products that they can afford to do it more easily than some of the other areas. So those home runs that you mentioned, like Palo Alto Networks, any uh, commonalities you can draw between them, like stuff about the founders or, you know, their go-to-market strategy, or is it just totally hard to... It's funny, VCs are, are known for looking at a success and figuring out the pattern, usually a pattern of one or two. So everyone will attribute them to different things. And you hear some really funny theories on like, great companies are founded by this or that. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the way the the path always works is that they have a like a killer team and killer team typically means like a great technologist coupled with a, a enterprise team that is very well known and they've they've done this before so that's that's part of it i think every wave of computing creates another set of really big companies it's the company who ends up being the best at something maybe it's zero trust right now and they use that wedge to get into all of the big accounts and to be very trusted and then typically through M&A, they will add other things to their solution. Some of them have built them all themselves, but 
typically you'll see this really nice sharp wedge. They happen to be in the right place at the right time with a killer solution. And then it really expands from there to take on all the other stuff on people's minds. And then you see that, that pattern over and over. It's a matter of how do you catch the right company at the right time. Let's say uh, you, you invest in a company, new portfolio company. They're trying to figure out their pricing strategy. What advice do you give them? Hmm. Great question. That happens all the time. And typically what you'll do is go through a series. The way almost all these companies work is you try to find a few early friendly customers. And these customers are someone who has that problem or they've identified it. And they're willing to work with you pretty closely to make your solution satisfy their needs, to integrate the right way, to present reports the right way. So phase one of these companies is almost always about that, is finding some nice, warm customers early on. And a critical part of that is how do you think about the value of this product, meaning how valuable is it to you? And like, how would you, how would you see the value growing? So some, some things like a, a virus detector, you know, you think about each laptop that uses it is incrementally safer. So you're probably gonna charge per laptop um, for that thing. I think it might be um, in the case of Splunk, they decided that the amount of data that you throw into the system is the, the unit of value that you're gonna keep thinking about. And so they charge by how many gigabytes of data you have in there and it grows and grows and grows. So it's, it's trying to first understand how it scales on that front, where the value is. And then there's just a realistic thing too. If you wanna get into companies and you have an enterprise sales model, meaning you know individual people who are going in and doing that more heavy-weighted type of sales, there has to be an amount of value ascribed to this product to even afford that. So if you can't make 100000 to $200,000 from a company early on, a bigger company, then you know you don't have the right product or the right model. So we typically look at it sort of from the customer backwards as well as what can this sales model afford. And you do it obviously in different orders depending on what's going on there. If you can't afford to have a product that goes in with an enterprise sale, there has to be a deep uh, viral effect between these where it needs to be loved by developers from the grounds up so that you can get into the companies. But this is a lot of what you spend time in basically between a series A and a series B investment in, in venture capital speak. Have you met any companies that are trying to address security in the self-driving car space? There are a lot of companies uh, pitching themselves as security for I'd say at the top level, security for IoT is how they would put it, the Internet of Things, as this giant moniker refers to. Some of them pitch it generically, saying the Internet of Things has these different traits associated with it. We're going to provide you protection. Those are pretty almost always off the mark because it's such a generic statement. Then the smarter ones will say, we're going after utility grids or we're going after autonomous vehicles or we're going after whatever the next thing might be. But there are a large number of them out there. <laughs> I will tell you that. They all have different approaches and they all have uh, different thoughts. But in the negative case, there's a lot of companies that haven't ever dealt with cars before and they just there's a problem that they think is there and they're trying to figure it out. My personal experience has been whether it's in the security space or the next LIDAR or some other thing for cars, People who don't really understand that market are really surprised later on when they find out the margins that are required by car companies, the need for dual sourcing on almost everything. There are a lot of unique things about that market that would make a naive new company hit troubles when they go after it. So I, I do think it's something that will be important, whether it's something a Silicon Valley startup can satisfy is TBD. 
What are the biggest vulnerabilities in the hardware supply chain? That certainly has gotten a lot of attention, hasn't it? It's also raised uh, alerts on how to do, I guess, how to do reporting in some cases. Sure. Oh, yeah. Reporting, geopolitics. Well, it's certainly something that I'd say, uh, whether it's hardware or even software, where the software came from or the hardware came from. By the way, reporting, you're referring to the Bloomberg article. I am in that particular case. Um, we don't know what happened there, do we? There's certainly plenty of rumors that have gone around. I wouldn't mm. spread them because I would probably be causing even more problems. But certainly Dang. the idea of you scooping. Can't say anything? <laughs> well, they'd all be rumors for real. But what's so weird about that article is, so it was this, you know, for people who don't know, it's this article that was sort of about this, like, problem in the supply chain with servers that were in Amazon data centers and Apple data centers and a bunch of places. Apple denied it. Amazon denied it. It was very strange because Bloomberg is usually quite on point with their reporting. And then what was super weird about it, and maybe I'm just like, I, I, I don't, I, maybe I didn't see it or I wasn't following close enough, but like it was after a while, it was just silence, like no resolution, like no follow up from Amazon or Apple or Bloomberg or anybody, which is, am I, am I describing it right? Like, yeah, you are. It's, it's one of the weirder cases there. It also, I mean, from my perspective too, this is one of the geekiest things that's ever hit mainstream press. <laughs> right. So yeah. I was kind of excited Good by that. Good sign for us. <laughs> exactly. But I do think, you know, I think from my perspective, folks like Amazon and Apple had proven to everyone that basically it's irrelevant and it's not a case for them. And so it kind of went away. That's sort of how I perceived it from the outside. Okay. They'd kind of done sufficient debunking. Okay. You don't see black helicopters. I don't. I don't. I'm not. I'm not in that world as much. But what's cool? I mean, I think you can talk about journalism all the way through. The, the rush to scoop something and to get it out versus maybe the amount of diligence on sourcing of the data and, and confirming has been an age-old challenge. I think for any type of um, press, and this is such a political time and, and sort of conflict with China and whatever else. I think made it even juicier to try to get this thing out as quickly as possible. There's probably some truth or some examples within there that are irrelevant, but not at the level that was exposed. And so there's, you know, it's typically some kind of gray area that's in the middle. But on the positive note for security, I do think it raised even to the next level, the level of awareness over the supply chain dangers and attacks. And kind of coming full circle to where we started, this is a form, it's sort of the supply chain form of zero trust. It's kind of like, like trust no one, or at least find a way to verify that this chip didn't have weird stuff put into it this firmware doesn't have some hacking code in it. Uh, it's a very serious issue. And I think I, I've personally been on the side of Apple as a supplier where they, uh, the amount of diligence they go into understanding not just your technology and what you do, but your human rights, like everything about a supplier is so high that they've raised the bar on what you need to do there. And I think more and more companies will get to extreme extreme certification of their supply chain. And if not directly, then it'll be through their you know, whoever their integration partner is or their distribution partners will be held to that level of accountability. And, uh, you know, there's lots of tech solutions that are in there for this sort of supply chain checking, but I think the scrutiny will be raised everywhere based on this and, and things like this. Do you have a perspective on this Huawei thing, or can you give me any kind of uniquely Steve Harrod perspective on what's going on there, or are the optics just too unclear? I would say I've been involved with a number of government contracts over time, too. And, and certainly, again, the level of scrutiny and worry about supply chain attacks is very high. I think it'd be impossible not to at least put this in the context of China-U.S. tensions and perhaps being part of the things at the bargaining table as you go through and do you know more of the uh, 
trade agreements that we're doing right now. But I will say it's certainly the case that telecom gear or server gear or networking gear, if it is hijacked, then it certainly can cause all sorts of risk to whomever is using it. You may not be well-versed in this, but do you have a sense for ways in which the Chinese tech ecosystem is misunderstood? Maybe I'm not as expert as a lot of people. I'll just say sort of the two things that we talk about quite a bit. I have a number of colleagues that are focused on the Chinese market a fair amount. And and so at least through osmosis, I'm picking a lot of it. I would say at this point in time, sort of 2019, I think people have recognized that by them being even more mobile first and more internet users over mobile they really push the envelope on the apps for mobile that are being used so heavily. I think everyone knows about uh, a lot of these solutions that they're using for payments or videos or entertainment of different sorts. So I think in many ways, we can look to China for where is the mobile app ecosystem going. In general, it's not considered uh, as much of a leader on the enterprise side of the world. You don't see as many besides things like Huawei or some of the, the gear side. We haven't seen as many innovative uh, enterprise apps or, or open source data projects or that sort of thing coming out of China. So that, we kind of see it in that world right now. How do the security concerns of governments compare to those of enterprises? They're obviously very sophisticated buyers of security software. And, and certainly, InQtel is a funding agency on, on behalf of the four-letter three-letter agencies. Uh, And they're able to be very thoughtful. We work with them on a number of cases where they can say, if you're going to be used by the government, this is kind of how their whole value proposition works. Uh, We will invest some in your company, and we will help you understand what it means to sell to uh, the government. And that's very helpful for startups who've come out of here and don't know what that means. The things that you do have to go through, I think there's a lot more scrutiny on I mean, they have some very sophisticated users who can audit source code and who can really understand what you're doing and who will really exhaustively certify and test the software through a bunch of different mechanisms that are there. Not to mention they have scale requirements that are very different from a lot of enterprises. The size of the government, the amount of data they have really triggers it. So I think they're a sophisticated user, and if you can sell to them, it's usually a superset of what's required to sell to enterprises, which is nice. Back to just the more geopolitical part, it is certainly the case that they care where your engineering team is, and they think about that quite a bit. If you have a Russian engineers on your security team, you're likely not selling into the U.S. government, for instance, probably vice versa as well. So I would say location of engineers becomes a much bigger issue in that world than in a lot of the other world. Speaking of which, what was the thing that happened with Kaspersky Labs? It was that like a couple of years ago where basically the government, the U.S. government said we cannot use Kaspersky Labs for anything. Do you, do you remember that? What was yeah, the, no, what, it was, it what was the pretty postmortem much, on that? Well, it was, it was probably similar to the <laughs> Bloomberg postmortem in the sense of it sort of ran out of people following it in the news. But it's a case where it, it's exactly the same thing as this supply chain side of things. It just happens to be it's more software oriented and perhaps based on where the company is from. Just knowing that if you have this software on all your laptops or wherever it might be, and you don't fully understand what it's doing, then it could be a source of malware or various uh, spying attacks. So it's not much different from these other cases. I don't know that I ever saw the smoking gun proof that it actually was doing something bad, but the fact that they're saying we don't trust this in the government was sort of enough for their purposes. Do you follow the geopolitical side of of cybersecurity that much, or are you mostly focused on like business enterprise side, or is it all the same? You you have to be aware of it. What's been particularly interesting over the last ten years is that the number of attacks coming in 
first of all, it was sort of individual hackers. Phase two was sort of um, maybe teams of hackers. Phase three was like organized crime, like pretty significant organizations. And phase four has definitely been nation state attacks. Right. And it's very well, we were, I mean, it's been very well covered where these things are going on. But what's more, a lot of companies have to focus on what's going on attacks worldwide so that they can be smart about what to protect their customers from. I have one company that's job is to look at threats around the world and you see the cool maps of like, well, they're not cool, but they're like, it's showing like right now, North Korea is attacking Japan and this is the type of attack they're doing. You would track that so that you could say, hey, this is a type of attack that might come to you, Mr. Bank customer in the US or London. So I think the ability for the teams to be attacking from anywhere in the world is certainly huge and very important. And the ability to get knowledge by watching what's happening around the world becomes very important as well. Now, you know, there's a narrative that in China, there's a much more porous relationship between, you know, the tech giants and the government. In the United States, it seems like, I mean, even like Snowden revelations aside, there is a, a pretty porous relationship between the tech giants and the United States. I mean, you have Amazon GovCloud, you have heavy lobbying efforts. I guess it's it's you know it's it's less of an open secret, or maybe it's maybe it's 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 simply it's it is less porous. But do you have a sense for the like broadly speaking the level of intimacy between our tech giants and the U.S. government? I would say that you know, one thing in the news a lot these days has been sort of the pushback of software engineers from, or the more liberally minded engineers that are at a lot of the tech giants as they get used for, you know, perhaps as they're being considered for use in a military use. I think we've seen that a lot in Silicon Valley, uh, right or wrong, we've seen that. But I, I mean, historically, it has been government funding, often for defense, that's led to so much of the big innovations, obviously the internet and many other cases like that. So I, I, I sense if I were to categorize it, I would say it's definitely less integrated as it is in some other countries or, or maybe in the China side of things. But um, I think like there is a, certainly a tight tie between them. And I think, uh, again, you often push the envelope with, with many government use cases that then can be used for a lot of other customers. So you're alluding to things like Dragonfly and Maven and maybe like Amazon Recognition. I find these some of these cases so strange. I might get criticized by the audience for this. I really want to do a show on you know with one of these engineers that has criticized Maven or criticized Dragonfly because they come down. Some of these engineers come down so strongly, like they know what they're talking about. To me, both the cases Maven and Dragonfly seem very subtle, very subjective. On Maven, you know the help with think identification of humans by drone. There are plenty of ways that can be used to save lives that are completely, you know, not going to kill people. Same thing with Dragonfly. If you give Chinese dissidents access to better searches that may be surveilled, is that strictly bad as a human rights technology? It's not clear to me. And the lack of subtlety with which these protesting engineers are approaching this issue is disappointing, right? Like speaking as an engineer that is trying to bring a dialogue to some of these kinds of issues, it's like 
grow up. Like, how did you get a job at Google if you don't have the subtlety to discuss these kinds of issues? Am I, do you do you disagree with that? Or no, you should have the software engineering daily political edition. I need <laughs> you to could do. I, you know, my my personal opinion on this is that. These technology changes are are coming, and they will be used in some capacity. And I do think, personally, I think if you can get involved with their adoption and put in the safeguards and understand the the risks and the challenges and address those, that's far better than just closing your eyes and pretending this isn't happening. So I'm more of a fan of engaging, but being really smart about how you do so and, and trying to do what you believe is right within the context of, of openness and discussion and debate. Yeah. What's your biggest request for startups for people listening in the audience? That's a great question, but I, I, I guess I already leaked. Whenever I meet a company, I really want to understand why they're at least 10 times better than anyone else and not two times. <laughs> so I, I think if you don't understand that or don't think about it, you might question, you know, is this really the endeavor I want to take on? Like think think big and think bold or, you know, go do the project under the bigger umbrella of some other company. That's probably where I end up passing the most is when I don't see something as being much more than just an incremental change. Um, I personally am come from a far more technical background, so maybe different from a lot of VCs, I like to really go into the weeds pretty quickly and understand the tech team that's there and their chops and and how they solve problems. Um, it's kind of geeky maybe, but <laughs> you should expect that from me if, you, if we meet. Preaching to the choir. How is General Catalyst changing as a fund? Um, it's been fun to be here. I, I've uh, been here six years now, and the fund it's, it's grown, first of all, quite a bit in terms of how much money we are fortunate enough to have to invest. And that's been due to being involved with some really cool companies and, and having some good early results. But uh, it's, it's a lot of fun here. We're in New York and Boston and San Francisco and Palo Alto, uh, where we are right now. And I think that's been really key for us. You can't really do startup early Series A startup investments, I don't think you can do it well unless you get to see the team every week, every couple of weeks, and, and hopefully adding value <laughs> when you're seeing them. So I like being, I like all of our team being near where a lot of the founders are and really diving in deep. And that's uh, no, great. It's really great to be here. And it's, it's a fun time to be in venture too. There's just so many changes happening at all times. The fact that we get to meet interesting companies all day, every day is it's such a pleasure. Steve Harrod, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. This is fun. Thank you. We okay. should do it again. Oh, yes, definitely. Wow.